0: For many of us, initially, dharma practice involves quite an effortful uh, application of technique to try to experience something that we imagine or hope for as a spiritual experience, whether it's mindfulness or calmness or joy or bliss and for many of us it takes a lot of effort a lot of different techniques to feel in practice to feel at all confident but for those who have been practicing for a while we understand that really it's not how skillful we are with a technique and it's not even how much effort we make it's how It's kind of like how embedded awareness is in our life generally that really is the result of all of that work. So tonight I want to speak about awareness as a lifestyle rather than a technique or a meditative practice, but just a way of life and what is supportive of that because Sayadaw Tejaniya says we should consider meditation and the development of wisdom as a marathon not a sprint Bummer. <laughs> and so the the Buddha taught that the controlling forces or the controlling factors in the development of our spiritual life are five Sada, or faith. Virya, or energy. Sati, mindfulness. Samadhi, concentration. And Panya, wisdom. So I want to speak about these five mental factors, how we experience them individually, directly, how they operate in practice, but also how they, um, how they feel as a lifestyle when they're developed, in balance, mature. These five factors are related to each other in that they are causal, meaning if one has faith or some confidence in, the teachings, or a teacher, or some understanding, a practice, they are willing to make an effort. If we're willing to make an effort, there will be some development of awareness, or some development of mindfulness. With that mindfulness, if there is an ongoing continuity to it, the mind gets quite naturally collected, samadhi. And the Buddha said the collected mind or the concentrated minds sees things as they are, wisdom. So each of them are the cause for the subsequent arising of the next, the effect. But with more wisdom and more understanding of ourself, of practice, of the goal of practice, we feel more inspired, more faithful, and therefore more energetic, more aware, more concentrated, again, more wisdom. And so this, this relationship of cause giving rise to effect is cyclic and gradually development, a gradual development of awareness as a lifestyle. So the first of these is sadhat usually translated as faith, but it's not the faith of a belief. It's really the faith that we feel or the confidence we feel based on our own personal experience, which in the beginning has to be very little, of course. But sometimes, and, and maybe you can remember, how you first heard of the Dharma whether it's from someone or from practice or a book or a tape, and something caught your attention. And even just agreeing with what you hear can be enough to spark one's faith. That, oh, there's something here. There's something for me. That I get it. I remember when I first, well... Okay. My first retreat was an accident. I was living in a commune up in Maine and it was a Grateful Dead Pink Floyd commune. (laughs) So you know what our spiritual practice was. (laughs) It wasn't Dharma. Nevertheless, I didn't know anybody who meditated. I'd never heard of Buddhism. I wasn't interested in spirituality of that type and yet when someone at the commune said oh they were going to go to a I thought they said something like a resort (laughs) so so I said that sounds pretty good (laughs) sign me up too so we got we drove down to Bucksport Maine where the first three month retreat was held and we walked in on (laughs) sixty people in the third month of a three month retreat the first three month retreat that Jack Joseph and Sharon and others taught the last two weeks of which was an introductory retreat for new people so we walked in and there's the dining room on one side the meditation hall on the other everybody's walking around wrapped up in blankets not looking at us (laughs) Couldn't find anybody to talk to, find out what we were supposed to do. We looked in on the meditation hall, it was dark, and everybody was sitting still as stone. We looked at the schedule, and it said, you know, four o'clock, wake up, you know, exercise, Uh, sit, walk, breakfast, sit, walk, sit, walk, sit, walk, lunch, sit, walk, sit, walk, sit, walk, (laughs) tea, sit, walk, 7.30, talk. We looked at each other and said, well, at least we get an hour a day to speak to each other. Wrong. <laughs> and, and so we went in, and the show began, and I, I didn't know what the hell we were doing there. I, 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 didn't, I didn't know anything about Buddhism, never heard of it, nothing. But we were there, we paid our fee, and we listened. It was utter and sheer agony the whole two weeks. It was, I was miserable. I sat up back, way up back, and leaned against the piano the whole time. <laughs> and yet, I did as best I could, went through the schedule, listened to the talks. You know, yeah, things resonated. That sounded good. That sounded good. You know, but boy, when two weeks was over, I was glad to get out of there. So we drove back to the commune. And pulled into the commune, met everybody. Everything was the same. Same people, same building, same dog, same animals. The The whole shebang was there. Everything was going on just like we left it, except everything was different. Our view, my view, of myself in that situation was totally different. And that was the beginning of the end of my involvement in the commune and the beginning of my involvement in the Dharma. And I look back at that retreat and I've asked myself many times and have concluded that what happened during that retreat? What happened to take me from complete unknowing about anything about the Dharma, meditation, spirituality, awareness, liberation, to here I am 35 years later, trying to induce you to do the same thing, (laughs) something got sparked. My faith, my confidence in here is something worth doing. Here is something that is, I didn't know what it was worth doing for, I didn't know what the purpose of it all was really I didn't really understand but just paying attention just being present with the experiences of life seemed real realer than anything else I'd done and soon after that IMS the retreat center in Massachusetts was purchased when they put out the call for volunteers there was no hesitation in my mind it's just I went that's what I wanted to do. It didn't take me a split second, even though I'd never meditated since the retreat. <laughs> I just totally forgot it for a year. But that's how powerful faith or the igniting of faith can be. And in my case, the igniting of the faith didn't depend on knowing anything about what I had faith in. I had no knowledge of the Dharma really and I didn't know what was involved in practice and I didn't know what the goal of practice was it was only a word it didn't mean anything to me and yet I had absolute faith that this is worth worth de- devoting your life to Rodney Smith who's another uh, teacher up in Seattle and teaches been teaching for many years um, when I first went on staff at the meditation center, um, he was on staff at the time. And the first day I was working there, uh, we were up in the attic, um, insulating the ceiling to try to keep the place warm. And we were having a discussion. Now, mind you, I'd done one two-week retreat. We were having a discussion about Nibbana.
1: things never (laughs) changed.
0: Something's never (laughs) changed. Anyway... (laughs) And Rodney reminded me a few years ago, he said, uh, when we were talking that day, I said to him, Rodney, I have absolutely no doubt that in this life, I will realize the Dharma. (laughs) What did I know? I didn't know what I was saying, but I was confident. (laughs) So, faith has this capacity You know, you can be really uh, confident about things that you don't know much about. (laughs) (laughs) And in my case, it really helped me to clarify my um, spiritual objective. Not that I really knew what I was clarifying, but it was clear that my life of dead dead Pink Floyd concerts and, and the spiritual accoutrements of that, had was over, and my life was going off in a different direction and I had uh, just a lot of confidence to do the practice and When I first went on staff, I wanted to do nothing more than just sit i would I would do the hours I had to work, but I just wanted to sit in the quiet well my mind wasn 't quiet, but I wanted to try to be quiet and I think that I understood then that um my life needed repair my 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 heart and mind were really damaged in some way, and that being quiet was really the repair work that um, was needed and uh, it's what I really devoted my life to for for some time now the 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 development of faith and the development of confidence in practice can only proceed in a very gradual way because we, we begin practice not really knowing what's going to be involved. You know, as Trungpa Rinpoche said, you know, it would be better if we never started. <laughs> but since we have started, it would be better if we finish. Because it's not easy. I mean, as you know, this path of awakening is not easy at all. And none of us know what's involved when we start. You just can't know. And so we start with some wrong ideas. And immediately upon practicing a little bit, we have doubt. We have doubt about, Jesus, is this this what's involved? Am I doing this right? Is this what's supposed to happen? Uh, Do these teachers know what they're talking about? Is it possible for me? And... These are all forms of doubt which will inevitably arise in in all of our minds or in all of our hearts in practice at some point. And so the question is, how how do we practice with what confidence or faith we do have when faced with the inevitable questions about doubt and lack of faith? The amazing thing is, we can borrow inspiration, we can borrow... Information from teachers and books and readings, but it's only temporary. We can get inspired to keep practicing, but ultimately we have to see the doubt in our minds, the confusion about what the path of practice is, what the goal of practice is, confront our own lack of self-esteem or self-worth in doing this or ability to do this, and these are all forms of doubt which pull the plug on practice and therefore stop our, stop our development, really. And so practice, the initial phase of practice, the initial stage of practice, is really learning how to practice to overcome doubt. And it's not that you can end run it, you can't get around it, you can't kind of skip over it, You actually have to go through it. You have to see all of these forms of doubt and know that you just have to keep practicing. And so you have to look at doubt. You have to feel what doubt is and be observant of it and be aware of it and not buy into it, not not identify with that particular narrative in the mind. And if you do, then ultimately... We come to uh, a kind of faith and confidence that is unshakable. Not because we're so, I'm going to do it like I was after my first retreat, but because we've examined all the filaments of doubt in the heart, in the mind, and we've practiced through them, and we realize that they're not really the, the impediment that they initially appeared to be. But for that kind of confident uh, confidence in practice, we really do need a spirit of inquiry. We do have to be really willing to look and you know uncover the uh, the amount of unknowing in our own heart and the amount of doubt uh, in ourselves, in our teachers, in the practice, uh, the efficacy of practice, the value of the goal, all of these things have to be uh, examined, and we have to come to our own experiential understanding of them. And so it it can't be anything but very gradual. A very gradual process of uncovering doubt and growing in confidence. But the job of examining all of those narratives possible narratives of mind, falls to energy and mindfulness because with faith with some confidence with some inspiration to take on practice then we're willing to you know pick up a technique use a technique apply the energy that we think is required and see what happens and energy is the second of the um, controlling or the, the spiritual faculties of the mind There's an interesting um, conundrum, though. Even though we have a lot of faith, maybe you've read some books, you've talked to some teachers, you've heard some talks, whatnot. As many people have, there still isn't the willingness to make the effort to engage practice personally. And the missing piece is there's no sense of urgency. It's like, yeah, that's a good idea. I agree. Yeah, the Buddhism and, and the practice and Indian awareness, and yeah, that's all good. Yeah, great. Yeah, I believe that. But practice, as you know, is not a matter of belief, it's a matter of actually doing something. And that's where energy is required. And so the proximate cause for energy is a sense of urgency it has to become you know it has to become important or vital to us urgent for us to to make that kind of effort and all of you came to the retreat something in your life indicated that this retreat or other retreats that you've done was important for you somehow that's good enough that's enough don't forget why you're here it's so easy in the kind of the ease and the comfort and the routine and the good food and the kind of like nobody's hassling you here for the most part. It's like it's easy to forget what you came for and just start kind of hanging out and lose that sense of urgency. And so it's important to remember why you're here. What brought you here? What was so urgent in your life that you would devote a week, nine days, eight eight days in this case, to doing this? You know, uh, the Prince Siddhartha, the Bodhisattva, was living in the, living in the palace. And he was indulging in all of the delights of the wealthy in India at that time, which is probably like living in California these days. <laughs> 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 kind of. <laughs> anyway, and yet he wasn't waking up, he wasn't making any effort in you know his practice until... He stepped outside the realm of his father's protective cocoon in the in the in the palace, and he saw, meaning, he understood. He saw. He felt, you know, what it uh, what it means to get sick, grow old, and die. We've lived in this society. We've lived long enough to know that. Yeah, people get sick, grow old, and die. has it touched your heart yet have you really got it that this happens to us because when we when we get it when we when we take that in when we bring the facts of life close to our own heart it can really spark a sense of urgency like what's it all about What's, what's this life all about anyway why are we here What are we doing with it? Are we just accumulating pleasures and hoping to get by without getting old, sick and dying? That's why reflecting on these three conditions brings a sense of urgency. And The Buddha suggested that we reflect on them every day. Not just to get morbid and bummed out and worried and anxious, but to help us understand that life is precious. And to make best use of our time. And this creates a sense of urgency. Why why do this? I mean, it's not easy doing this kind of practice as, as you all have discovered. But reflecting on these conditions and other conditions that the Buddha spoke about as a, arousing for arousing a sense of urgency is not just to get bummed out, but to inspire us to make the effort with confidence that there is a way through this. There is a way to understand what life's all about. There is a way to understand uh, old age, sickness, and death and to, to make those experiences a beneficial time in life. No one succeeds without effort, Ramana Maharshi said. No one succeeds without effort. I know we've been talking about relax a lot. It takes a lot of effort to relax correctly. (laughs) It does. No one succeeds without effort. Mind at peace is not your birthright. Those who succeed owe their liberation to perseverance. Saito Tejaniya puts it in his own way, it's not difficult to be aware or mindful. It is difficult to maintain it continuously. And for this you need right effort, which is simply perseverance. So it's not that we need a real muscular, effortful energy all the time in our practice. But it's that we need just enough perseveringly because I think Carol asked you in the first the first night of the retreat you know how much how much effort how much energy does it take even as you sit here now to feel the sensations in your right hand got it did that take a lot of effort did that take a lot of energy no but in every moment notice something that takes perseverance and that's the kind of energy that is needed in this practice again how can we know this when we start practice we all start with okay I'm really gonna get it I'm gonna get I'm gonna get the best use of my eight days you know and we try too hard and then we get really burnt out and pain and tense and anxious and then we say no 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 I'm gonna I'm gonna relax I'm gonna chill out and then we just kind of gaze off in a thousand yard gaze and hope that it happens to us you know it doesn't and so our, our swings in energy go from wildly over energetic to wildly under in, you know energized and gradually we come to understand what energy is actually required but it can only be a gradual development of the understanding of how much energy is needed in any one moment we can't know that without practice we can't know that without experience. I can't remember if I said this or if I pointed this out in this retreat to you, but it said that the um, the manifestation of energy in our practice is non-collapse. You know, and when we're trying real hard, we're not collapsed. When we're totally lethargic, we're totally collapsed. But the place in practice where we go from right energy or right effort to collapsed is so subtle. You know, we're just going along, we're being present, we're there, we're there, we're here, we're here. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we give up, we drop, we, we just drop the ball. We drop our own intention, we drop our aspiration, we drop our faith, we drop our energy, we just drop the ball. And it's really hard to pick it up. It's hard to notice that we've dropped the ball. But it doesn't take long before we we realize that we're, we're not being very aware. We're not being very present. Carlos Castaneda, that great spiritual teacher of the last century, wrote of his teachers, Don Juan's instruction to him about right effort. He says, Don Juan assured me that in order to accomplish the feat of making myself miserable, I had to work in a most intense fashion, and that it was absurd. I had now realized I could work just the same in making myself complete and strong. The truth is in what one emphasizes, he said. We either make ourselves miserable or we make ourselves strong. The amount of work is the same. Hmm. So with effort, with energy, with making some use of the instruction, a technique, making some effort, we have some experience with mindfulness. Mindfulness is the third factor, uh, the third of these five factors. Mindfulness, we've calling synonymously with awareness in this retreat, has its own Task really has its own task in our process and the function of mindfulness is to remember now as as we all know if I tell you to pay attention to the sensations in your right hand it's easy to do and then if I say pay attention to you know the the thoughts in your mind that's that's easy to do but what's hard to do is to remember to do it yourself Isn't it? We just forget. You know, we sit down with all good intention. We plant the seed. I want to be mindful. And that lasts for about 30 seconds. Because it, too, is impermanent. That intention is just as impermanent. That resolve, that determination is not very strong. It's conditional. It doesn't last. And so we have to try again. And we plant the seed again and again and again and again. And eventually we begin to be more not forgetful, but it's not something that we can control. We can't control mindfulness. We can train in mindfulness, and that's what we're doing. And it's important to understand that, that we can't make ourselves be mindful continuously, but we can train the mind to be mindful more continuously. And that takes this kind of persevering energy in order to do that. So remembering to acknowledge the present moment, to observe the present moment. It has another function. Mindfulness has another function, and that is to see things as they are, meaning it doesn't put a spin on things. Mindfulness is accompanied by a quality of mind that doesn't allow you to deceive yourself. It sees things. As they really are. If something's painful, you really see it as painful. If something's shameful, you really see it as shameful. If something's unwholesome, it's mindfulness that tells you what's unwholesome. It shows you because you can observe it. You can't you can't spin it any other way. We we have the habit of spinning things in our own way, of, of benefiting our our self narrative mindfulness cuts through that it won't let you do that and so it it shows us a lot of our mm, less than noble qualities and characteristics behaviors thoughts so it has the function to remember it has the manifestation of not adding not allowing spin and it has the characteristic of actually tasting the flavor of the present moment it's, it's mindfulness that allows us to feel intimate with ourself to really get close to our moment to moment experience Saito Bandita one of our other teachers in Burma he says a life without mindfulness is like food without salt it's kind of mushy You know, it's there, it's got a texture, but it doesn't have much taste until you add just a little salt and it really enhances the flavor of the food. Mindfulness is like that. Life without mindfulness, it's kind of, it goes along. But when you add mindfulness, you taste each moment of life. Interestingly, the proximate cause for mindfulness that the condition that most supports being mindful is clear perception now perception is the capacity of the mind that takes notice of what is unique and distinctive about this experience so when you look at an apple and you look at a banana together what is the distinctive unique characteristic of each well banana is long and yellow and a apple is round and red that's how we know round and red is not banana because we've registered we've seen enough of them to know we've taken notice of that's what distinguishes one from the other well perception is happening all the time we are perceiving our own experience and constantly registering is this familiar is this pleasant is this unpleasant is this not is this novel is this gross is this subtle do I like this Do I don't not like this is this okay am I okay for and this is constantly going on this is not this is just a natural activity of mind it's not personal it's not morally good or bad it's just a natural activity of mind it has allowed us it is really our we'd say genetic heritage because those who went before us, who did not develop these, this capacity to, to make very refined distinctions between this and that and the other thing, their genes didn't get passed on. They ate the yellow thing that looked like a banana but really wasn't. It was poison. And so they didn't make it. And so we have this capacity, or I should say it's a natural activity of the mind. The problem is we get attached. We get identified with what we like, what we don't like, what we see what we what we prefer, but it's the clarity with which we see things that we the, the clarity with which we distinguish one moment from the next that supports the continuity of awareness. Think about that if we just sitting there kind of like in a a kind of a a kind of a global Presence, not really taking notice of anything, but just kind of be hanging out there. Not may not be very clear perception. If we're not clearly recognizing the uniqueness of this moment's experience, but it's just kinda of all mushed together with everything else, mindfulness is not very strong. And so it's the ability to taste the flavor, the unique flavor of this moment, which supports being mindful. In the next moment, clear perception is the proximate cause for the continuity of mindfulness. What often happens in practice is that it is really difficult for us to believe that just being mindful, just observing the present moment, and recognizing it is all we need to do. Our minds are so attuned, or so infatuated with making things really complex. It's hard to be, it's hard to keep practice really simple. And so what we find is that the mind has a tendency to, when we're practicing awareness, to explain why something's happening or to figure out why something's happening or to try to make what we prefer happen or to get rid of what we don't prefer happening and all of these are agendas to fix to explain to figure out to create that attach themselves agendas that attach themselves to our effort just to observe now you have to ask yourself can you observe can we observe what is going on in our body in our minds without the need to explain it why it's happening it's hard because when something's unpleasant we want to figure it out we want to figure out why it's unpleasant and figure out how to avoid it and strategize how to avoid it hereafter that's not mindfulness That's attachment and aversion. And yet, that's what we've had to do, you know, kind of genetically, just to survive. And so now the challenge is, how can we just observe what the mind is doing? Notice these agendas which attach themselves to our effort and not get entangled in them. Because they're just other chapters of the story of my life explaining why I'm like this why I'm not like that why I'm so having such a difficult time with practice or whatever whatever your story about yourself was today it's just a story it's not just pure bare observation of what's going on it's a story about what's going on and they're they're vastly different what's going on and the story about it are two completely different things so we need to be alert to the agendas or the projects that attach themselves to our attempt to just be observant, to just remember to observe the present moment. It's important also to understand that mindfulness is not a personal characteristic. It's not a personal attribute like you can either be mindful or you're not. It is a capacity of the mind like a muscle. It's not it's it's not whether you have a muscle. We all have the muscle. It's whether it's developed and useful for us. And just like when you go to the club, you know, and you do your reps, whether it's you know, on the bike or with the bars or the weights or whatever it is that you do you know, it's training the muscle to be available when you need it, right? It's like you don't train your muscle, you don't don't use these weights just to be able to use these weights. You use these weights so that when you have to pick up the bag of groceries, you don't hurt yourself. Same with mindfulness. We train the mind, we train this muscle of the mind, and it's not like you can either do it or, you know, or, or some people can't do it, anybody can do it. It's like any, any training of the mind will, if you, if you intend to, anyone can develop the mindfulness muscle of the mind. So it's not like you are a failure at it, or you can't do it as well as you might like. That might be true. But it's just a matter of more training or further training or more skillful training, and it will happen. with faith or with confidence we make effort with effort we become more mindful or we become mindful some of the time it is the continuity of mindfulness the number of moments of mindfulness we would say that collects the mind if we're only mindful one second every minute well that's not that's not very mindful right or if we're only mindful for five minutes in a day, that's not very mindful. And so there's not much continuity, so there's not much collecting of the mind. And when you're not mindful, the mind is just scattered to the four winds. Right? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you've seen. When you're not mindful, the mind, the mind goes anywhere. The mind has a mind of its own. It just wanders off. It wanders off into la-la land, into the past, into the future, into anxiety, fear, jealousy, envy, you know, worry. Oh, everything except being mindful. Mindfulness takes training. Wandering doesn't. We know how to wander. It just happens. Okay. So how do we collect the mind? How do we collect the mind so that it stays here? Well, we have to remember more frequently to be mindful. The more frequently we remember to be mindful and are mindful in the moment, the more collected the mind becomes. This collecting of the mind is called concentration or samadhi. Now, a lot of us started Dharma practice with the instruction to focus on some chosen object. For many of us, it's the breath, either at the nostrils or at the abdomen. Although some of you have other, other practices, but for many people, it's the breath. And even though it was never said, what we did was to glom on, (laughs) glom on to this object like that was the only thing that was important and it's the narrowness it's the smallness of the object which we devoted all our attention and energy and interest in. It's like how continuously can I be with that object as if the object was the goal. But it's not the object that's the goal. It's the continuity that's the goal. And so we've mistaken the goal of the object or the object of the breath or the sensations or whatever it is as the goal. And it's not. In the process, of course, we get more continuous because we've only got one thing to pay attention to. If you're not on that thing, get back there, right? and we've all done that we've done plenty of that practice or most of us have where as soon as you find yourself off the breath get back there this is great for developing continuity of mindfulness and the effects of concentration now the effects of concentration are what we're all looking for calmness seclusion of mind joy bliss ecstasy eventually and all of those good things you know where where it's kind of like psychedelic mind yeah you know when we come out of a retreat of nine days and we're just kind of like floating hey, yeah this is good I'm glad I did my meditation didn't learn anything but I got I got some special effects the spiritual goodies we call our teacher calls them spiritual goodies calmness clarity faith uh, effortless energy uh, piercing clarity deep understanding you know all those things just goodies and for a while, we might be satisfied with that. But did you ever notice how they don't last? They don't. Even if you keep trying to sit at home, you can't make that last. And so the seclusion falls away and you find your mind getting all restless and anxious and fretful again and of course the, the the ease in the body the the open spaciousness in the body contracts, and you feel kind of dense again and the faith that you had kind of gets corroded and you feel a little doubt and questioning and maybe I'll go to a different kind of retreat next time and right and all of those spiritual goodies just kind of degrade back to normal why well because really it's not because we're not on the breath it's because the continuity of mindfulness is broken up no more continuity and so the effects of the collected mind are gone now when the mind gets collected through continuity of mindfulness and it can be on a single object or actually it can be on changing objects which is what we're encouraging you here not to stay with one object but one object It might be the breath in one moment, it's a sensation in the next moment, it's a thought in the next moment, a sound in the next moment. And so the subjective experience is, it's chaotic, right? But actually the continuity of mindfulness is just the same as if you were focusing exclusively on the breath. And so even though the object is changing moment by moment and the continuity is the same, you still develop a sense of seclusion, a sense of tranquility, a sense of clarity, ease, etc. except it's a lot more pliable, it's a lot more flexible, it's a lot more dynamic because it's open to all, the whole range of experience. It's not just the breath. When you just focus on the breath and you seclude the mind on the breath, as soon as the mind gets pulled off the breath your samadhi is broken. Your concentration is broken. But if you're training the continuity of awareness on changing experiences a sound, a sight, a sensation, a thought, a memory, a plan, an emotion, whatever then what is going to break the continuity of it? Nothing. So the samadhi that develops with this open awareness of the full range of objects is much more flexible, much more pliable it can accommodate any any situation you run into even going home going shopping going to work having an argument whatever we can be mindful of all that and still not lose our samadhi still not lose that sense of seclusion that is the prize really of 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 retreats like this is learning how to seclude the mind from the hindrances from the defilements so in this practice, we're encouraging you to open the mind to to really uh, notice all of the things that are where where your mind goes, so that you can learn how to be aware of them and not lose the continuity of the awareness, which brings that seclusion of mind. Now, when the mind gets collected and secluded it has a way of mm, unifying the mind. It's like we collect pieces of the mind from that memory, that plan, that thought, that sensation, this sound, and we collect it so that all of the mind is present in this moment for this experience, the next moment for the next experience, the next moment for the next experience. When the mind gets that collected, it sees things differently. It's like a magnifying glass. Or if I if I hold up my hand here and say, what do you see? You said well, you see my hand. And I said well, get a little closer. Get a little closer. Get so close that you can see what's going on there. And then when you look close, you say, well, I can see all the fingers and I can see the, the lines and I can see some cuts and some, some scratches and some moles and whatever else is on there. And then I give you a little magnifying lens and I say, okay, now look at it through that. And you look at the piece of the skin through a magnifying lens. It doesn't look anything like a hand. And yet... You have more knowledge more refined and subtle knowledge about what you're seeing than you do from sitting back there right this is what happens when the mind gets collected as the mind gets collected through the continuity of awareness we are looking at the same thing we're looking at the moments of our life we're looking at the common everyday experiences that we are paying attention to and yet we see them differently. In fact, we see them with more understanding. We have more details. We see in a more refined way what is actually going on there, just as a magnifying lens looking at the back of your hand sees things in a more refined, more detailed, greater understanding way what it is you're looking at. Same with the mind looking at our own experience. We're looking at the same thing, the same thoughts, feelings, emotions, memories, plans, sensations in the body, hopes, dreams, aspirations, same thing, and yet everything looks different because we have more understanding. This is where understanding comes from, the collected mind looking at very familiar things. This is the development of wisdom. This is the fifth of the factors in this Uh, of the fifth of the five spiritual or five controlling faculties. Because wisdom, as we have mentioned several times during the retreat, is the key to the end of suffering. It's the key. Without a change in understanding, we'll continue to do things the same old way and suffer in the same way. As we grow in understanding, we'll do. We'll see the need for and the way to do things differently. The way to believe things differently, the way to act differently, the way to speak differently. Everything changes because we know more about what's going on. We know in a more refined way, a more detailed way, the nature of our life, the unfolding of our life. This is wisdom. And this kind of wisdom, this kind of understanding is only possible through... Paying attention to your own life. You can't read it in a book. You can only read the generic version in the book. Oh, these are the insights, or this is the kind of knowledge that you get. And there's, there are very detailed maps of the kind of knowledge that you get. But it, it doesn't mean anything until you do the work. A map is not the journey. It can point out, it can encourage, it can inspire, it can point out dangers, it can lay out some of the landmarks that you're going to see. But you still have to take the journey. And so don't mistake the map for the journey. Here you're on the journey. Now you're doing the work. You're actually walking moment by moment into your life, getting more intimate through the development of these five faculties. You can understand. You can see that the more you understand about practice, the more you understand about your own uh, buttons and how you get pushed and what causes, what, what your personality characteristics are. The more you understand that, the more skillfully you can live. The more you'll be inspired to practice. The more practice you do, the more you understand. This is how these five factors begin to guide our practice, guide our growth in understanding, and guide our journey of liberation. Without going into all the details, let me just say that when we look at our life from an un or non-dharmic perspective, we have enough skill in navigating the conditions of life to do good enough. And yet, no one can deny that there's Still, a tremendous amount of unhappiness, sorrow, depression, fear, anxiety, sadness, that is suffering. Sometimes we just say, yeah, it's inevitable. Everybody experiences it. It's true. It's true. Everyone does. But did you ever ask yourself if there's another way of living? Because the Buddha is pointing to it the Buddha realized there is another way. There is a way to be free of these kinds of suffering. And it's through the development of these five faculties of mind. And ultimately, through the wisdom or the understanding we gain from developing awareness. Awareness is the activity of these five faculties with understanding of what is going on, as Carol said, to know clearly, intimately, and in infinite detail, the way things have come to be. Whether it's the body, or the mind, or mental states of suffering, or the way of practice. This is what we learn from just paying attention. But it's only from paying attention Observing carefully that we're going to learn it. What we've been doing this week is just that. I know it's easy to lose perspective on why I'm here and what am I doing and what about my knee pain or back pain or whatever. And sometimes that's all that you can be concerned about. But, you know, in the big picture, that's what's required. Really to learn intimately. The nature of this mind the nature of this body and the unfolding of uh, awareness it's not easy it's not easy you know our parents didn't teach us this we didn't learn this in school you know it's something that's uh, extraordinary an extraordinary opportunity in our lives to hear the Dharma and to have the uh, facilities like this and the encouragement of teachers and teachings because it's not, it's not common sense. It's advanced common sense, some people say. And it is. You can see it, it's, it's kind of ordinary and yet it's pretty extraordinary too to the extent that we're willing to you know, make effort with whatever belief and faith And confidence we have, definitely there will be a benefit. Definitely. It's not, it's just cause and effect. If we make the effort, there will be more mindfulness. If there's more mindfulness, more continuous mindfulness, gradually the mind gets collected. The collected mind inevitably sees things in more details and understands more intimately, more deeply the way things are. This can't help but be inspiring and give you more faith and confidence to make more effort. And the more effort is going to result in even greater continuity of awareness, greater concentration or collectedness of mind, and more profound and subtle understanding. This is the way that the practice unfolds gradually, cyclically, developmentally. If we make a continuity of effort, the rest will follow. That's why Sayada Lutajaniya says, you know, right effort is perseverance. It's not muscular. It's not making a heroic effort. It's just being there, moment after moment, from the time you wake up to the time you fall asleep. Whatever you're doing, that's the moment. That's the experience to pay attention to. And from that, the rest of the path unfolds quite naturally. So let's sit for a moment and let the words quiet down. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma. In a half hour there will be another group sitting. And Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.